The following is brought to you by the Leave It in the Ring Podcast Network. All boxing, no filter. Greetings and welcome to the Boxing Esquire Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Boxing Esquire Podcast. My guest on this episode is one of the best matchmakers in the business, Eric Botcher of uh, Matchroom USA. Um, I had a great conversation with Eric about the art of matchmaking and uh, his journey in the sport, all the way from uh, making kind of low-level fights in, uh, in Virginia and, and in Maine with uh, my man Johnny Boz, um, and getting his shot with uh, America Presents and Dan Goosen, and then uh, working with a number of great promoters in the business, Cedric Kushner, Don King, Artie Palulo, Rock Nation, Lou DiBella, now Eddie Hearn and Matchroom. Um, definitely gave us some great insight on uh, the art of matchmaking. And, and Eric is, uh, without question, you know, one of the most uh, thoughtful and, and knowledgeable people in the business. So uh, really hope you enjoy our conversation um, as much as I did. So I'd like to welcome to the Boxing Esquire podcast, one of the best uh, matchmakers in the business, uh, friend of mine, Eric Botcher. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. Nice to be in New York in January when I live in Florida. Thank, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, hey, you know, you are you definitely are a guy who's used to the good weather. You uh, you're from California originally, right? Correct. Walnut Creek. Um, growing up, um, were you a big boxing fan? Um, I was a sports fan, and I moved quite a bit when I was growing up because my dad worked for the government, and I was living in South Korea when I was 12. Oh, wow. And Muhammad Ali was a guy, obviously, that I used to like to watch fight, and he was fighting Ken Norton at Yankee Stadium, and the Armed Forces Network could not afford to show the fight. So I went to the local commissary on the military base, and I saw a magazine with both of them on it. And I bought the magazine, and I started reading about, I thought it was about them, but it was also about Roberto Duran from Panama and Carlos Monzon from Argentina and all these fighters from different parts of the world that I wasn't aware of at different weight classes that I wasn't aware of, and I just became fascinated. And I went to the library, and I checked out every book I could on boxing, and I read about the history, and I was just hooked from there. I was 12 years old. Wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so at what point, I mean, you went to school at Oregon, you majored yeah, in journalism. Co- yeah, I went to college <laughs> in Oregon. I didn't know what I wanted to major in. I knew I wanted to be in boxing and I like to read a lot. So I thought, well, maybe I'll learn how to write and I can be a boxing writer because back then all the major newspapers had full-time boxing writers. So when I used to read their columns, you know, religiously, so I said, I can do that. And of course, by the time I graduated, you know, most of them were gone or, you know, being let go or being, the positions were consolidated. So I didn't quite know what to do. And I was in New York and I met Johnny Boss at a WBC convention about a block from here. And he took me over to the Blarney Stone and he goes, you got to get out of writing. You're never going to make any money. You should be a matchmaker. I had no idea what a matchmaker was. And he explained it to me and he got me started in the business. Okay, wow! I didn't know that that Boz got you to start in the business. That that's that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, actually, when I came to New York, uh, started representing fighters, I happened to go to Jimmy's Corner and run into uh, Boz yeah. and uh, 
Joey Gamash, and we sure. ended up uh, partnering on uh, Malinaji and Jeff Resto and a number of fighters. We'll get to Vaz, though, because we, we, we're going a little timeline here. But um, looking you up on BoxRec, uh, it, I found it really interesting because you it, it lists your first matchmaking job as one with a promoter from my hometown, Don Prishak. Don Prishak, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Don Prishak. Prishak Plastics, Yeah, yes. it was just a great guy my age and he got involved with don elbaum's son kip kip who used to manage my brother's uh, <clears throat> punk rock band the ex-wife yep. so there you go <laughs> yeah, yeah. i gotta get a hold of kip when i'm up here um <laughs> so th- don had signed some fighters and opened a uh had a training camp in erie and you know learned what most people learn when they get involved in this business so you can spend a lot of money and um did uh, two shows in virginia beach and that was the first time I matched shows, and the shows were horrible. And uh, <laughs> I did a terrible job. I didn't know what I was doing. But Don uh, didn't know what he was doing either, and, uh, you know, we both learned. Don learned to get out of the business, and, you know, he was smarter than I was, so I did not. <clears throat> so we're talking like 1992 here. 92, so, uh, yeah. so I guess, you know, uh, obviously – you know, Boz explained to you what a matchmaker does. And, uh, you know, I just wanted you to explain to the listeners, you know, uh, what a matchmaker does. I know it can vary from show to show, promoter to promoter, but in general, what are the, the duties of a Well, the matchmaker? reason, the re- Johnny was smart because um, I did know from a pretty early age when I was watching a fight that I understood what I was watching. And um, that's a talent. Uh, and a lot of people, you know, I could go to the ballet and watch the ballet for 20 years and not really get it and for boxing when i was a kid i would watch it i got i understood what was going on so um it's a talent but it's also you know obviously like any other profession you gotta you gotta put in the work in order to you know uh, improve so um it's uh um it's always a a learning process i'm still learning you know it's uh, it's it doesn't end because the business back then is not the same as the business is now, so you have to adjust. If I took, if anybody took six months out of this business and came back, they would be not starting over, but they would be way behind. So, um, you know, that's part of the uh, the the appeal to me. It's it's just never stagnant. You know, you have to uh, you have you, you have to be into it every day. Absolutely. Well. <laughs> This was 1992, so it was pre-internet, pre-box rec. Right. You mean your sources of information are basically word of mouth, Ralph Citro's fight facts. <laughs> right. The Ring, KO Magazine, Virgil Thrasher's sure. uh, boxing update, maybe Joe Collins' uh, independent world boxing ratings, if right. you <laughs> look at things, television, Bella the tape guy. Um how was you know? I mean, obviously, those were the big differences. But well, how was it making matches? Say in the early nineties. Well, I, I like um, there's good matchmakers today. Like there's good matchmakers at any time. So what I tell people is, well, you know, uh, back then it was different. I'm like, yeah. I, I said you try dealing with the commissions now with all the medical exams and the the pre licensing and the. Um, the guy's going on YouTube and seeing a guy that even looks scary and not wanting to fight him and so <laughs> forth. And also, back when I started, you could call a gym. You could call a boxing gym. You could call a gym in Missouri, and they would have five or six pros in the gym. Or you can call a gym in Utah, and they have two or three pros in a gym. And you know, now I could call Gleason's gym and not find anybody. So 
the the amount of uh, people in this business on the professional side has gone down, including the fighters. It's harder to make fights. Um, guys don't want to fight anybody uh, because you know they have you know this uh, 21st century media where they can check everybody out and see something that they don't like and they don't want to fight the guy. Or back then you had twice, like literally twice as many fighters, twice as many shows. It was harder to get opportunities. Guys were, you know, realized they had to take a risk to get an opportunity. And, uh, you know, no fight facts, no medicals, no commission, uh, um, you know, rejecting fights arbitrarily for whatever reason. So, you know, um, I was born too late. <laughs> it been a lot easier for me back then. Hmm. Hmm. So going back, going back to Boz, I, I wanted to talk. Well, so you you actually you actually did a show in Erie, Pennsylvania, my hometown, right? You you matched. Uh, I yeah, said I did. Had Lonnie Bradley, Melvin Foster, Keith Holmes, Reyes yep. Munoz. Too bad I was in law school, man. It looked like it was a decent card. Um, but you did a show with Boz in in Maine in uh, nineteen ninety three. Yeah. Uh, you you matched the fighter by the name of Han Kim, Correct. With uh, Joey Gamash, right up there. So how did that go? Was it like working with the Boz up in uh, up in Maine? Well, Johnny Boz, uh, for the people listening who's never met him, I'll describe him. When I met him, uh, he stepped out of the Penta Hotel in December. He was wearing a, a full-length white mink coat, designer sunglasses, bleach blonde hair, about six foot four, three hundred pounds. Um, just you know, like you you know, noticed him obviously. And very gregarious. Yeah, he was a stone-cold alcoholic. When I met him, he was not drinking anymore. I never saw him take a drink. He'd drink about 20, 25 Diet Pepsis a day. And he'd eat uh, plain hamburger meat and pop ephedrine like Tic Tacs. <laughs> that was Johnny's diet, which is unfortunately why he passed away when he was 61. Yeah. Uh, but he was... Um, as a human being, he would do anything for you, and he uh, helped me tremendously in this business, and uh, very knowledgeable. Um, I learned a lot, not only about what to do, but what not to do. Um, uh, I mean, you know, if I hadn't met Johnny Boz, I mean, I'd still be doing what I'm doing, but I'm not quite sure how long more it would have took me to get to the point where I'm at. He, he, he was a tremendous help. And uh, very generous with his knowledge. I mean, Johnny was a guy, uh, you know, the, the quote boxing guy is something that describes certain people. And Johnny was that he would wake up at two in the afternoon and he would be on the phone until five in the morning. And, <laughs> and you didn't have to be making him money for him to spend 45 minutes with you on the phone. And right. he would give you tremendous knowledge. And actually, if you said something that was rational or intelligent he'd give you credit for it i mean he wasn't like a negative guy he was uh, a booster and he loved the business i mean johnny boss when he was 15 years old was going to the gyms in new york and going to the fights and started the charlie devil green fan club and you know <laughs> i mean you know you don't see that nowadays i mean it's uh, you know uh, people like him and flash gordon and don majeski and uh, Jack Overmeyer, I mean, you know, they were really, uh, you know, the heart of what, you know, New York boxing was. And unfortunately, nowadays, it's uh, doesn't, you know, that kind of thing doesn't exist. Right, right. Yeah, he's definitely one of a kind guy. Uh, yeah, I can attest to those um, 
12 o'clock, 1 a.m. Uh, phone calls. Yeah. <laughs> Toughest guy to get off the phone, too. He just loved talking boxing. Yeah. You could not get him off the phone. Um, but uh, speaking of uh, Han Kim, uh, this was so, something. Yeah, so <laughs> so here's the confession. Um, <laughs> Han what? Kim was not Han Kim in Maine. He was Q Han Park. <laughs> and uh, Johnny made up this story with uh, a confederate who was the um, – uh, a sports writer up there was a very nice guy and uh Q-Han Park who was a creation of Johnny's uh, imagination was uh, a Korean Olympian and was coming up <laughs> to beat Joey Gamash and couldn't speak English and of course Han Kim speaks perfect English <laughs> and I mean one of the funniest things at the press conference somebody asked you know Han Kim quote you know Q-Han Park how tall are you and then Han just stood up it's like brought the whole house down <laughs> And um, Joey hit him with the hook, and I'd never seen this before since the punch landed on Han's cheek and it cut him to the bone. Oof. Yeah, it was a nasty, nasty cut. And unfortunately, the fight was stopped in the first round. But, um, you know, back, back, in, uh, back in that time, and this was going on in the Midwest a lot, um, this was, you know, not performance art, so to speak, but uh, this happened frequently. And fighters fought each other under different names because there was a lot of shows and um, um, uh, a lot of, quote, records being built. Not that Joey needed his record built. Joey Gamash could fight. And um, uh, Get well, Joey Gamash, by yeah, the way. We all wish you very well. Absolutely. It's horrible to hear about what happened. Yeah, Joey Gamash. I spent... My 29th birthday in Jimmy Glenn's bar with Joey Gamash, and that was uh, that was a lot of fun. And he was, I mean, he's just a great guy. And, and Sister Terry and his his, uh, his dad, I mean, I had a lot of fun with yeah, them. the whole family. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, but that you know, you know, that wasn't like a malicious. I never looked at that as like a malicious thing, or or or, or people being, um, um, you know, hoodwinked. Although I guess they were be, but. Uh, um, or ripped off, I, I think is the best, you know, because, you know, they were fighting in, in Maine in a uh, main event on a Tough Man show. And most of the people were there paying their $10 to see the local bartender fight the other local bartender. <laughs> right, right. You know, and Joey Gamash was just, like, wonderful added attraction, you know, fighting this unknown Korean fighter. Right. So, you know, this was not on HBO and, you know, um, you know being um, presented as something. It was not, so. Right. Well, uh, but, you know, Han Kim also fought, I think, in 1994. A guy by the name of Rick Zahn. Um, <laughs> so I took... So I took Do you Han- happen to know who Rick, Rick Zahn <clears throat> yeah, is? Would, tell the people? Yeah, that would be me. So I took uh, <laughs> I took Han Kim to a fight. The You know, this, back then, it's like, it's now managers buy fights for guys. And what, if you don't know what that means, is if a guy is inactive or if a guy, quote, needs a tune-up fight and there's not a lot of shows going on, the manager of a fighter will take the fighter to a state that has a, uh, a, an athletic commission that just does local club shows, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Arkansas, Alabama, whatever, and you fight a local opponent, and the manager will pay his own fighter and pay the opponent, and, you know, the opponent tries, and he's going to be outmatched, and he's going to lose. I mean, every, you know, once in a while, you know, you see a comet, and one of the opponents wakes up and, you know, knocks the, uh, the, the, the guy out, but... Uh, rarely happens. So I was working with Han. I was promoting my own shows. He was a big ticket seller in Northern Virginia. The Korean community s- supported him tremendously. 
and he needed to stay active, so I took him down to North Carolina. And the promoter thought he was slick. I was young, and he thought I was an idiot. And uh, he switched opponents. And the opponent that he put in, I knew, and he had a bad record, but he would have beat the tar out of Han Kim. And I told him, you're not going to fight. We're not going to go home. And he goes, I have to fight. I came all the way down here. I need to fight. You have to find someone for me to fight. And I was Han's size, and I looked at him. I said, well, you can fight me. <laughs> I said, I could use the $300. You can fight me. <laughs> so um, we fought. <laughs> Well, you made it to the third round, though. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, but it says, uh, I will set the record state. It says I was stopped. I was not stopped. Han was not a puncher. He could not stop me. I was actually in better shape than he was. <laughs> and um, so I got myself disqualified. Is that right? should have been a DQ. Yeah, because he, he couldn't have knocked me out if his life depended on it. <laughs> that is awesome. So, so, all right. So, you you know, you worked for Prashak. You, you promoted your own shows. You, you, know, you did a little work for Boz, but... Eventually, you ended up working in big time boxing with America Presents, right? That was kind of your yeah. I was staying big time. I was staying at Jack Fist's house. Jack Fist was a longtime boxing writer for the San Francisco Chronicle, and right. I got to know him when I was in college. And I was actually sleeping on his couch and cataloging his memorabilia collection, which he was selling. And um, one of the best times of my life, spending time with Jack and. I went out to lunch and I got back and he goes, Dan Goosen called you, which was like, you know, shocking. So Dan, I got Dan on the phone and Johnny Boz and somebody else, I forget who, had recommended Dan to hire me as a matchmaker for America Presents, which had just formed. And I was very thrilled. And I went out and did the interview and they hired me on a trial basis and they hired me permanently and then they fired me after 10 weeks. <laughs> That's right. So you, know, I look like yeah, ninety six, ninety seven. I mean, you, you did a couple fights with them, Correct. but uh, yeah, what was it like working there? I mean, eventually, uh, you know, Tinley kind of forced Dan Goosen out of that, and, and well, it they was went by the wayside. It's like any other. I mean, look, every there's no normal boxing company, so um, I enjoyed working there. Um, you know, I deserved to get fired. I did a really stupid thing, and um, Matt was. Uh, uh, you know, the, I think it was the nephew of Bill Daniels, who's a cable giant, a billionaire, and uh, had some money to spend. And uh, Dan was spending the money. Um, <laughs> Dan, and what I learned about Dan, though, that he was a, a, a great promoter. Dan was, um, you know, when you look at his history, what he did with Michael Nunn, what he did with David Tua, what he did with David Reed, when he would focus on a guy, you know, he would really maximize the earning potential of that one fighter. Um, you know, the Rorellis brothers, I mean, he, um, you know, he really knew what he was doing. He was a very bright guy, very confident guy. Um, I really learned a lot. You know, I was there 10 weeks. I really learned a lot from Dan Goosen. Um, so I didn't, you know, wasn't angry at all, especially, you know, looking back on it now, I was fortunate. And um, uh, I was working, you know, literally 15 hours a day there to learn mm. the business. I was very excited. So, uh when I lost that job, uh, I wasn't depressed because at that point I knew, I said, I said, I can do this. You know, I, w I knew I was going to get another opportunity somewhere. I, I said, I can do this. It's not going to be a problem. That's great. Well, <clears throat> wasn't too long after that that uh, you hooked up with uh, Cedric Kushner, right? Yeah, I think uh, four or five months later. Right. I think September is the first yeah, show. He, uh, he hired me in August. Did the first show in September of 97. So, um, uh, 
worked for him until 2004. And okay. Had a lot of fun. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure. Like, Boxwood <laughs> kind of cuts it off at like 2000. But uh, Cedric is interesting, interesting yeah. guy. I mean, it sucks that he seems to like fall through the cracks now. But like at the time, he you know he had a ton of little guys who were champs, right? I mean, he worked with. Uh, he was- he was Too Sharp Johnson, sure. Jake, Jacob Matlala, Welcome Nikita. And yeah, he was partners with a South African promoter named Rodney Berman on a lot of very good South African fighters. And that was like the the, um, the zenith of the scene in South Africa. They produced uh, tremendous fighters then. And, but Cedric was making his money. He was like, not the pioneer of, but he took advantage of, um, you know, foreign TV rights. So he would do a show, and he would sell the show to 70 to 80 countries and get small bits from here, small bits from there. But when you add that up 70 to 80 times, he was making a lot of money. Um, he was doing a monthly heavyweight uh, series called Heavyweight Explosion, which, you know, uh, the shows sometimes are god-awful because you're handicapped by, you know, got to match heavyweights up, that's it. No other weight classes. But he developed... Uh, you know, he developed heavyweights, which is where the money is in the division. And at certain periods of time when I was there, Cedric had five of the top ten heavyweights in the world, simply because of that series. And the heavyweights would come to him because they knew they would be active and that they, they were going to fight. And um, it was a very smart idea. And then after a few years, uh, he kind of lost his way. So, Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, just to go through some of the names. And I mean, that you know, I had lived in New York, you know, uh, since 1990, and I didn't really get involved in boxing in the big time until maybe the late 90s, early 2000s, and that's that's when I uh, probably met you and, and said. But I mean, Chris Bird, you know, Hasim Rockman, Kirk Johnson, Derek Jefferson, Ray Austin, um, Oleg Muskayev, Obed Sullivan, Al Cole, Ike Bayabuchi, uh, Jamil McCline, Charles Shuford, Ed Mahone, King Ipatan. Um, Tavera Williamson, Attila Levin, Eric Kirkland, Gerald Nobles, Andre Perlet, David Defi Agbon. I mean, Cedric signed and worked with a shit ton of heavyweights, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the idea was I'm going to, like, you know, corral as many as I can. One of these motherfuckers can right, become heavyweight sure. champ. <laughs> no, the, fir- the first day I was there, first day I was in his office, I got a collect phone call. And, you know, it's like one of those pauses. And the voice on the other side, the girlish voice on the other side, and it goes, Ike. <laughs> so I covered the phone up, and I told Cedric, I said, some collect call from some guy named Ike. Cedric said, go hang up the phone. Hang up. <laughs> so Ike called me every day, collect for Monday through Thursday, and on Friday, Cedric finally told me, he's like, he's in, that's Ike Ibiabuchi, he's in jail right now, which nobody knew at the time. That was the first time he went to jail, trying to kill his uh, girlfriend's son. Oof. And um, they get, they bailed him out of jail, finally got him out, and uh, I dealt with Ibiabuchi for a few fights, and uh, he was mentally ill. Not like, you know, you hear cliches about, oh, this guy's crazy, this guy's nuts. And, yeah, I mean, you know, fighters, you know, are off. You know, they're getting punched, and they punch people. It's not <laughs> like a normal profession. But Ike was mentally ill. He was a dangerous human being. And um, I told Cedric... Um, you know, I'm not an expert, but I said, uh, you should, you know, really get rid of this guy because he's going to kill somebody. You know, he's very capable of killing somebody. I don't want it to be me. I don't want it to be you. But, um, you know, 
uh, you don't want to be on ESPN answering questions about why, um, you know, this guy who's potentially the next heavyweight champion and he was that good, you know, you get him to that point and he wins the title, it's, his behavior is going to be worse. It's not going to get better. It's going to be worse. And uh, you're going to have to answer for that. And, uh, you know, Cedric, you know, to his, not credit, but I understood, you know, he was willing to take that chance. I mean, what promoter doesn't want to promote the heavyweight champion of the world? But um, Ike, fortunately, I think, lost his way before then and, you know, spent, I think, 17 years incarcerated after he did something in Vegas that wasn't good. Right, right, right. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah. I remember interviewing uh, Chris Bird and, and Chris Bird um, fought Obeyabuchi and that day, like, I don't know where, you may know where, remember where it was, some casino. Tacoma. I think, Tacoma, yeah, there you go. Emerald Queen Casino. And uh, Chris Chris gets to the arena and he sees Obeyabuchi pacing around in the parking lot in like these cowboy boots and hat and he said it's fucking hot as hell out. And he's just pacing around the parking lot. And he goes in, and he's in for like a couple hours, and he just kind of comes out to get some air. And the Bayabuchi is still out in the parking lot. Like well, I, well, when it came time to go into the ring, I, I wouldn't go into the ring until uh, his manager ran out and bought him a Snickers bar. <laughs> is that right? That yeah. was his ritual. <laughs> no, it wasn't a ritual. Just I decided he wanted a Snickers bar. So the poor guy had to jump into his rental car and drive. Well, this was the bird fight. Yeah. <laughs> drive down to the 7-Eleven and buy a Snickers bar. <laughs> that is crazy. That's crazy. <clears throat> now, you said, like, Cedric lost his way. I mean, uh, a lot of people, I mean, just in New York, thought, like, you know, the shows in New York were just too fucking expensive. And, and Ced was going through too much money. Yeah. And, I mean, like, and Thunderbox was kind of like the, the, the tipping point. Well, two things. I mean, look, Cedric's more knowledgeable than I am about the business. But, you know, my opinion was that, you know, we were doing these monthly shows at the Hammerstein Ballroom. It's costing us a tremendous amount of money. We were losing about $50,000 a show, which 20 years ago was a lot of money. Right. And uh, he's like, well, we're getting great press in New York. And I'm like, no, we're not. Nobody, there's nobody in the New York papers writing about these shows. When we do shows in Vegas, these heavyweight shows, we're getting half-page spreads in the Review Journal and a lot of stuff on the Internet. And here, people just come to the Hammerstein because they can drink and look at the women, and uh, that's the attraction. It's a it's a place to be seen, but as far as getting attention to the fighters themselves, I don't see it. And you know, he's like, "Well, the people from HBO come, and the people from Showtime come," and I'm like, "Well, they come half the time, and they come for the main event. They don't see, you know." I just I didn't agree with any of that. And then um, the vice president, Jim DiLorenzo. Um, very bright guy. I actually saw that boxing, you know, was, you know, going to make a change business-wise that this model that was happening in the 90s um, was not going to work as the new century came in. Not simply because it was a new century, but because, you know, everything evolves. And he thought that boxing and music together would be um, a hit. And uh, he was wrong. <laughs> but you know I, and I, I used to be mad at Jim about that but you know now seeing how boxing you know continuously evolves into radically different things um, you know he was actually right in the sense that you know the way the business was being done then was not going to work in the future because it doesn't work now and um, but he you know he just picked the wrong horse but he he was uh, you know uh, he could see you know he could see that this 
business model uh, was going to falter at some point the way we were going. So, um, so he gambled. You know, he gam- You know, Cedric gambled and he gambled and uh, they lost. Right, right. Well, I guess going public too wasn't like the best thing for Cedric's company either. That, that I have, you know, I mean, look, <laughs> that that I, you know, I'm not a financial person, so I, I really can't speak to the positives or negatives of that. I mean, right. I can only speak to the, about the, the. I know the boxing business itself, and I can talk about that. So. Right, 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 right. Well, I guess yeah. I mean, at the time too, there was Ko Nation, which was trying to like be that more hip hoppy and, yeah. and bring music and boxing together. Yeah. So I mean, somebody is like pretty pretty succinctly. It's like people that want to go to a concert don't want to see people fighting, and people that go to boxing don't want to see some guy singing. Right. That's right. not you know, it's not that's not why they're going. Right. So it's like you're sort of like disappointing both crowds. <laughs> right. Right. So. So you said you were with uh, Cedric till about 2004. Was that kind of, uh, I mean, was he having to cut staff or? or? No, he was, look, he was having financial issues, but. Uh, By the way, you guys had like a, a great team. I remember going up there, I think 2000 or so, because Cedric had Shane Mosley at the time. Correct. And uh, I had Teron Millette, who fought Arturo Gatti on the undercard of the first uh, Forrest Mosley fight. I remember right. going up there, and it was what you. Ron Stevens was there. Right. Um, Jim DiLorenzo, Greg Juckett, right. I remember, and, and said. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, a, it was an awesome team. <laughs> well, we had we had three women in the office. Uh, um, Jeanette, uh, uh, Jeanette Morton, uh, Beth Camper, and, uh, um, oh, God, um, forget the, the best one. Um, but they, they ran the office. Mm-hmm. If they if they weren't in that office, it would fall. You know, it would fall apart. I mean, they were like they were like the machine in there, and um, um, uh, you know, like you didn't see them at the shows, and you know, you know, they weren't like in part of the negotiations, but they kept, you know, you know, they kept Cedric in line. You know, you know, <laughs> they kept all of us in line. So um, Kathy Volk is uh, who I'm thinking of. Okay, right, 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 right. They were, they were, they were great. They were like, you know, they could, they, you know, if you would have put them in charge, we might still be going, doing shows. Yeah, it's a shame. I, I definitely, I miss you. Said I actually uh, represented him uh, in Gotham Boxing, uh, kind of towards the end of his promotional life, and uh, you know, definitely have some great stories. I don't know if I want to share them on a podcast though. But uh, so around two thousand four. You uh, you left to, to join Don King Productions? Yeah, they had actually approached me in 2001 at the Trinidad um, Hopkins fight. And uh, I stu- I should have went. I stupidly turned them down because I had loyalty. Um, <laughs> and Cedric was actually having financial issues then. But Cedric had told me, you know, I remember he took me for a walk. He knew what was going on. He, so he goes, we're going to turn this company around. You stay put. Don't worry. And uh, I should have left. I should have right. left. Don King um, um, had a good group of people there. Um, was doing a lot of good shows, working with a lot of uh, you know, you know, doing big events with great fighters. And uh, when they came back around three years later, then uh, you know, I didn't even think about it. I went. Right, right, right. So you also moved to Florida at that time, mm-hmm. right? You you yeah. remained uh, ever since. Still there. <laughs> yeah, still there. <laughs> Well, because I, I think I remember seeing you. If you joined in two thousand four, I might uh, saw you right right around the time you you, you started because uh, was that the Brewster Klitschko? Um, yes, Sphinx Judah. Yeah, it was the first. Yeah, it was the first show I did uh, with Ken. <laughs> I used to battle it out with Don, so uh, 
I remember you you had a you had a good line about that. Someone asked me if I was Spinks manager what my name was, and I said my name's Kurt Emhoff, and you're like, Oh, that's not how Don pronounces it. He pronounces it a uh, Kurt motherfucking Emhoff. <laughs> Did I say that? Yeah. <laughs> Probably right. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Well, those were good days, though. But man, I mean, it, you were there what from two thousand four to two thousand six. Yeah, I was there for twenty twenty six months, I think. Don was still. I mean, at at the time, was still pretty much on top, along with with Aram, probably the two top promoters. Now, at, at the time. time I left, for about the last eight months, I was there. Cause he he was, he was in, just starting to fade. He was infused with HBO and Showtime, and mm. he decided he was going to do his own pay per view events. Uh. And they they didn't do well, <laughs> and people started getting laid off. And there was people. I was in my office there, and I watched people like walk by me, like it was like out of a movie, like with a, you know the box of the stuff <laughs> in the, from their desk. And I'm like, wow, that lady's been here for 17 years. That guy's been here for 12 years. Like you know hell am I doing here? <laughs> and um, uh, I let Bobby Goodman know um, that if, you know, I was either going to get more responsibility or I was going to leave. So they made the decision for me because after I told him that a couple weeks later, uh, uh, they called me and it's like handed me a very nice check and they said, good luck. <laughs> but, I mean, I was one of many people you know, when I when I worked for Don, I think there was forty four people in that office. And wow. when, I, when I left, I think there was like ten or eleven. Wow! Yeah. Wow! Yeah, he had really fallen off the cliff, so to speak. So you, yeah, okay. So you were you were that because I mean, when you first came in, you know, they were doing HBO shows like Brewster Klitschko, sure. and he he had like what three of the belts, the heavyweight belts at that. He had Ruiz and Bird. Yeah, well, you know, like he had Ruiz and Bird and Galata and uh, Holyfield and and Brewster, uh, yeah, who just knocked off Klitschko. and yeah, Rockman. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, he had it going on. So. Right. And he did Jones Tarver too, where yep. Jones got knocked out. So I guess he had Tarver for a little while. Yep. Um, and then of course, uh, you know, Spinks Judah too, which sucked for me. But um, <laughs> Trinidad, uh, Trinidad was pretty much on his way out right at that point. Trinidad so fought just well, come back. Trinidad right? fought Mayorga in a tremendous show at the Garden. I mean he sold I think seventeen thousand and something tickets and uh, you know he butchered Mayorga and it, I mean Mayorga he played his role perfectly. And then um he had this uh middleweight from New Zealand named Masolino Maso Masoe. And you know I had no influence over Don King. And but I beg, I remember begging him. I said, "Put Trinidad in with Masoi because he'll win the middleweight title." Right. He was like the WBA, yeah, regular WBA champ title, exactly. And Don said, "No, we're going to fight Winky Wright." And I said, "Why are you going to do that?" He goes, "Because uh, Trinidad's father knows that Winky Wright can't punch." And I said, "Well, that's the issue because Winky Wright can't punch, so he's not going to punch with Trinidad. He's going to box his ears off." Right, he's not right. going to engage with him. Right, right. So he will engage with him and get knocked out early. And uh, he goes, "Well," and it was weird hearing King say this. He goes, ah, "I got to do what the father wants," which I knew wasn't true because Don King, you know, <laughs> right. when is he, he going to, you know, do what somebody wants? And I never could figure it out. Hmm. I never could figure. I, I, you know, I don't know everything, but I begged him not to make Holyfield with uh, Larry Donald. For the same reason. I said, right. Larry Donald's not going to engage with Holyfield, and Holyfield won't touch Larry Donald. Right. 
And he's like, no, Larry Donald has no heart. I'm like, yes, that's the point. <laughs> you won't engage with him. It's not going to be a fight, and Holyfield can't win the fight. You know, you should put Holyfield in with Meehan and put Rockman in with Donald rather than vice versa. And then, you know, then down the road you could make, uh, you know, Rockman and Donald if you want. I don't know. And um, so as bright as he was, uh, they made some really stupid boxing decisions, mm. which kind of surprised me. Yeah, they, that, that was pretty but much then again, the you know, if I, you know, I wasn't complaining because, you know, if I want to change shit, I should just, uh, you know, I guess for my own company. So. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, you. I mean, Don is like really bitter as hell now from what I hear. I mean, not that I'm great friends with Don, right. just through the grapevine, just that he's kind of off to, you know, back with the also rands and Bob Arum, his arch rival, is, is on top. So, Well, Bob um, Arum invested in his company um, and built uh, an infrastructure. And Don invested in himself and branded himself, right. which is very smart because, you know, he, he could do a show because it was him doing the show people would come where Aram actually actually put on talent and, <laughs> you know, make competitive matches. And uh, But in the long run, um, you know, when you get to the age that those fellows are, they're 87 or 88, both of them, I think. And, um, you know, King, um, King outlived his usefulness, whereas Aram um, has people to carry on and to, 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 I mean, Aram's still very active and very involved, but... And very sharp. Yeah, too. but if he wasn't, that company would still exist, you know, right. the company would still go on. And King was never interested in delegating, you know, respons- you know, real responsibility to anybody. Right. You know, just wasn't interested. It didn't, uh, didn't have the trust. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Just number of factors. I mean, just as a manager too, it's like you know when you have other options out there. You know, it's not just King and Aram. You know, you had Debella coming up, and you know any number of promoters. Why would you go to King, who's just like a complete pain in the ass to negotiate with, and your fighters aren't going to get paid what they're going to get paid at other places? I'm just like because I had fighters with Don. I had Corey. I had right. Tehran. I had uh, Travis Sims. You know, and and the thing is, too, even to this day, Don has sway with the sanctioning body. Sure. So, you know, he, he'll, it seems like he'll take that to the grave. He'll always have that. But it's just such a it was such a pain in the ass to deal with him. Well, if you have a certain kind of fighter, he's a good guy to get with. Um, for, uh, you know, look at the fighters that are with him now. You know, Trevor Bryan. Right. Who is he? Right. <laughs> Trevor, just to answer that question. Trevor Bryan is a heavyweight. And I think he's had 19 or 20 fights. He's undefeated. He's never fought anybody. But he's in a mandatory position in the WBA because right. of Don King. Right. Now, a guy like Trevor Bryan uh, would never be in that position with any other promoter. Absolutely. So a guy like that, um, Don King is good for him. Right. A guy like that. Um, and the guy that he beat, BJ Flores, Don King is good for a guy like that. These guys don't want to fight anybody right. to earn their position. Uh, and I'm not saying they're cowards. Maybe, you know, maybe they, they think they're fighting people. I don't know. But um, um, but if you have a, a real fighter that wants to be active and that wants to be uh, properly developed, then, yeah, Don King is not the way to go. You know, I mean, um, a guy like Stavern, who actually ended up winning a WBC title, uh, did so on his talent. You know, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't developed properly. Right. That, 
<laughs> that's the thing too. Fighters just sit with Don. He's, he's right. not an act. He's actually just a a, um, a booking agent now. He's not even a promoter. He right. Do he doesn't do shows? But but it's interesting because I mean I, I, you know it's it's. You know, he was a guy who was literally at the top of the sport, you know, for a very long time. Yeah, he got to talent. Right, right. He got to talent. I mean, right. that's, that's you know, the like any business, it's the product. What's, you know, whoever has the best product, you know, is going to sell the most. You right. Know? So Don had the best product for years. Yeah, know? he had all the pieces on the board. That, that was his thing. And then, he, you know, he would move them when he wanted to move them. Right. And it's funny because now it's kind of like another guy from Cleveland, Al Heyman. Has a, has a whole yeah, I mean, lot of pieces, change. It's pieces like, on the board. And look, I don't blame these guys. I mean, it's their money. It's their risk. You know, I understand the fighters uh, and the managers have a certain idea of the way a career should be developed. I get that. And sometimes it's, um, uh, you know, more intelligent than on the surface than what the promoter is doing. But the promoter is the one taking the risk. The promoter is the one, you know, putting on the show. So the final say-so is going to be with the promoter. Right. And, you know, nobody is forcing these fellows to fight. So if they don't like the fight, if they don't like the money and all that, you know, they don't have to do it. Um, you know, it's sort of like the best and the worst of capitalism, this business. Right. You know, it's the best and the worst of, like, you know, basically uh, human beings. Right. You know, it's, um, you know, boxing is an extreme. It's an extreme behavior. It's an extreme sport. It's an extreme business. And, um, you know, you see things that uh, are breathtaking and um, astonishing on a good level. And then, you know, you see things that are, you know, terrible. And you see people behave terribly. Right. And uh, you see people get hurt. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, with Don, too, it's like, you know, I think, like, the guy who, who's the, the best comp to him in the business right now is Dana White because he's made the UFC bigger than the fighters, doesn't particularly pay the fighters, and makes himself, you know, out there, you know, uh, but does he get the criticism that Don did? I mean, I, I don't think he takes half the shit that Don did uh, in his day. But Dana, Dana White's <laughs> business model is, um, you know, putting, you know, making great shows and putting the best fighters against each other. And look, they're, they're ruthless business people. So they, they do deals. So they did deals developing. It's like exclusive, you know, so basically gave over time, these fighters know where to go, but you know, any smart promoter would have done that. It's a, you know, ruthless business. Right. So why would you handicap yourself? And you're not doing anything illegal. Um, I don't think. But um, you know, let's say, I think the difference with Dana, there's no competition. Don had a competition. Well, well, That's a him out of business. Well, he eliminated. I mean, Don, if Don could have done what Dana did, he would have. But right. boxing, you know, <laughs> you can't put that genie back in the bottle because glove glove prize fighting has been in existence since the 1890s, where Dana had something new. Right. You know, I mean, I knew it existed. They bought. They bought something new. Yeah, it was. Yeah, <laughs> but it was new. Right. You know, it wasn't like a legitimate um, world class business. Where boxing has been around, when Don King got into boxing, boxing has been around for 80 years. Right. So, right, you know, right. if Don could have done that, he would have done it, but he couldn't do it. Absolutely. So can't put that genie back in the bottle. Not that, that, not that he didn't try either. Yeah. But, uh, so let's, let's keep going on the Botcher timeline. So 2006, at, at a certain point, you, you leave uh, DKP. Um, and where did you go? You went, to, did you go to DRL? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, living in Florida, I got to know Louis de Cubis, and we became very close friends. And um, uh, I, it's—I don't think a lot of people know Louis very well. 
but I mean, he's like one of the most positive human beings you could meet. Like every, mm. you know, he's very complimentary to most people, and he means it. And you know, where a lot of people in this business are negative or, or backstabbing and so forth. And if Louis has something bad to say about somebody, it's sort of like with a chuckle, and you know, it's not like malicious or anything like that. And uh, he knows he knows the fighters. He knows fights. He knows the fighters. He loves the he loves the he loves the uh, the sport as well as the business. So he had a uh, financial fellow in Arizona that put together this company, and they hired me as a matchmaker, and uh, I worked for them until the financial guy turned out to be a Ponzi schemer. Just <laughs> yeah. like shocking to all of us. He's such a nice guy. He was a really nice guy. Very nice and, guy. Yeah, uh, I met his did family. Did some business with them. Yeah, I met his family at his house, <laughs> and then he said, "I mean, you know, I mean, he was the last person he thought that would be like a you know mini Bernie Madoff." So. Actually negotiated uh, Kid Chocolate, uh, Peter Quillen's yeah. contract with him. But that was Dan Weiss, and DRL was Dan Weiss, Roberto Duran, yeah. and uh, Louis DeCubis. Now, the other great thing is I got to know Duran was my favorite fighter growing up, Duran and Ali, and I got to know Duran personally and got you know went to his house multiple times and hung out with him. It was just like, it was, it was great. Definitely, definitely. I think uh, you and I crossed paths in... in uh, with DRL when uh, you guys had a show. Um, I think the venue got switched at the last minute. It ended up in D.C. I had Darling Jimenez at the time, and he fought Mike, that. Mike Anchondo. Didn't he beat Anchondo? He, yeah, he upset Anchondo. And he disappeared after that. Um, well, you got you got a you got a big fight eventually, right? Yeah, you got you got Gamboa. Yeah, you got Gamboa. Yeah. yeah, the problem with Darling, and you know, I, I love Darling to death. It was a hell of a, a fighter, but he just did not like to train. And if if you called well, me was, and gave me like six weeks' notice, he'd right. never make weight. <laughs> right, right. So I, I turned down some fights for sure. Yeah, he was like a lot of these guys. He's a part-time fighter. So. Right, right, right. But. uh Great, great amateur fighter for sure. But, um, but yeah. So you worked with, uh, I guess you you kind of worked with Louis even after DRL, right? Yeah. So because um, it was yeah, like, he was trying to you the know Cubist presents was he was uh, trying to get going again, and uh, I actually did some shows for him for nothing because uh, you know we got along very well and I trusted him, and uh, he got hooked up with uh, a met owner, the Turkish promoter. I did some shows for them. I met Head Gamboa and. You know, a couple of uh, other guys that didn't pan out. Um, so we did some shows uh, with with the Met too. Yeah, I think uh, it was interesting. I I, I was looking at uh, one of your quotes because um, you did uh, Rigando's debut, right? Yeah, Guillermo Rigando's yeah. debut, and uh, um, someone asked you because I guess his debut was like a blowout. So they're like, you know, talking to you about making the match, and you're like, you try to find a medium, but it's hard. I would have loved to have been a matchmaker thirty years ago. When there was no fight facts, no medical cards, no medical tests, and 15,000 active fighters. Now there are less than 5,000 active fighters in the U.S. The commissions are tough to deal with. The states each have separate rules, separate medicals. And people who are opponents are getting smart. They realize we're faced with a supply and demand problem. Little supply, big demand. They know they can pick and choose who they want to fight. And this was 2009, so yeah, it's only gotten worse. Yeah, now there's 2,800 active fighters in this country. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah it's terrible. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I might I might jump ahead a little bit, but uh, um, yeah, I wanted to get to that because you know uh, we'll, we'll we'll get to that later on. Let's let's, let's uh, right. keep that point. But um, at this point, you kind of um, 
you know, you, you made matches for a lot of different promoters. I mean, I guess you work with Artie quite a bit, right? Artie Palulo? Yeah, I did his fights from, I think, 2008 until um, 2015. Right. I remember working with you with uh, John Wirt and Square Ring. Uh, yeah, I did his do, fights uh, for a couple of years, yeah. Dimitri Salida. Uh, I'm the biggest whore in boxing. I just realized that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you worked with Roy Engelbrecht, uh, Ollie Dunlap, right? Yeah, I still do his charity show every year with Ollie in D.C. It's one of the funnest things I do every year, and it's actually one of the few good things that I do in my life, so <laughs> I, feel, I feel pretty good about that. I think one of my fights, I think Teron Millette fought on that one yeah, right? he did. down in yeah. D.C. Uh, he got dropped in that fight. It actually could fight. Worked with Greg Cohen a little bit, right? Yeah, Greg and uh, partner Vito Maloniki uh, from Jersey were doing some shows, and I did, you know, just local shows to build fighters. You know, Vito's a guy that uh, signed a bunch of uh, uh, decent to good fighters and, uh, you know, really believed in keeping them active, and uh, I actually liked working for him because, you know, you could tell he had a real passion for, Absolutely. Uh, for the yeah. business, and uh uh, first time he yelled at me, I told him to go fuck himself, and uh, we got along after that. <laughs> yeah, he's intense. He's no, definitely no, but intense. He, he's in, he's, but he's but he loves the game for sure. He's and he's good to the fighters. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I also saw you you uh, you know getting back to things something we talked about earlier. You you did some work for Sugar Han promote pr- productions. Uh, did I? Han Kim? <laughs> yeah, two thousand thirteen. I, re- I, I don't remember that. <laughs> you don't remember. <laughs> to block that out. <laughs> I really don't remember that. <laughs> you fought him, and then you worked for him as a, as a matchmaker, so it came full circle. Oh, I helped him out with the show. Yeah, I yeah. did that as a. I don't even think. I don't even think I charged him. I just did it as a favor, you know, because uh, he's a good guy. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, so that's that's you guys obviously have a great friendship. Um, so with Artie, you know, you, you were mostly doing, I mean, you know, occasional HBO shows, but you mostly did um, ESPN. Like the ESPN Friday Night Fights, yeah. great matches. You had action fighters like uh, Provodnikov, Ruslan Provodnikov, right. and Jihoon Kim. Oh, yeah. Did some, uh, did some classics. How was it working with Artie? Artie's a uh, very smart businessman, um, very good boxing man, um, fun guy to be around, um, you know, I just, you know, you wish that there was a level playing field with the, the major networks because there never is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm saying that being on both sides of the fence because Cedric had an advantage. He had a very good relationship with HBO. So he had an advantage there. And, you know, Artie never had an advantage. You know, Artie, you know, was always, you know, there was more than one time where Artie had, you know, a guy like Provodnikov, um, uh, you know, he was told, well, maybe if you work with this guy, we can put him on the network. Uh, you serious? So the network's literally telling you to work with another promoter just to get your guy on the network? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's brutal. Yeah. And it, can you, you know, imagine you're doing that, you know, that's your livelihood and you're doing that for a living. And, you know, I, I you probably have to restrain yourself from strangling somebody. <laughs> you know, some guy that, you know, just paid a, a salary. And I'm not saying that to be bad. I get paid a salary, but, you know, you know, some guy that's being paid a salary telling you, like, basically, you know, how to do your business. Um, yeah, with the... Now, you know, ESPN had a certain budget back then. Um, so, I mean, I guess I want to ask if they, they you had, like, battles uh, with the network over... It's a horror shows. show doing ESPN shows. Horror <laughs> shows. That's awful. 
because they approved all the fights, um, and they didn't they didn't know what uh, they didn't know the fights like I knew them or other matchmakers. Now, I'm not just speaking for myself. Other matchmakers went through the same thing, and um, so they're dictating to us, you know, who we put on, and um, that was tough, man. It was like, uh, you know, we're the ones taking all the risk, and. Um, they're telling us not only what fights to put on or what fighters to put on, but where to do the shows. Like, they would reject sites. You know, oh, you, wow. get a, you, know you get a great site deal. And you go, yeah, we don't want to go there. <sighs> so it was um, terrible because they had no competition. USA Network had got out of boxing in 1998, and ESPN was drastically, over time, reducing their license fees. And I think at one point was not paying, or people were paying them. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it was uh, terrible. I think Golden Boy yeah, did that. They yeah. had no license fee. Yeah, <laughs> terrible, terrible business model, and drove a lot of people out of the business. You know, drove drove a lot of the small time promoters out of business that hoped to get to an ESPN level. Right. And that dream, like you know, when that dream ended, they were like, you know, what are we doing? Right. So, um, really hurt the business. Really hurt the business. So, you know, with, with fights like that, I mean, you're, you're making fights for the promoter's prospects. You don't want to overmatch them. Uh, yeah, you got to make beat. everyone happy. you got to make a good fight where your guy wins and looks don't good. Don't want to undermatch them either. Right, right? exactly. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, you don't want to piss off the network. But uh, do you have, like, a over, like an overriding philosophy or rules when it comes to that? Because I know with, with Boz, he had a few rules. Like, when we were developing Malinaji and especially Resto. Resto... Didn't like lefties, so no lefties who, who, who at least were worth a damn. Um, Johnny didn't like uh, punchers either for guys on the way up. Definitely like you know smaller guys kind of coming up. I know um, Carl Moretti kind of subscribes to the uh, Teddy Brenner model of like tough fight, easy fight. Um, do you have any like hard and fast rules, like the the, the botcher rules of, of matchmaking you could impart? Or yeah, I think it's like climbing a ladder. So, like, I thought Johnny's way was wrong because Johnny would take a guy like Jerry Cooney or Alex Stewart and feed him 20 bums. Or Mike and, Tyson. Yeah, yeah he made Tyson fights. And, and throw him in with, like, you know, the number two guy in the world and cross your fingers. Right. And to me, that's not the way to do it. Um, you know, when you climb a ladder, you if you try to go up five rungs, you're going to fall on your face. So, right. um, I mean, I've never heard about Carl Moretti, tough, easy fight, tough, easy fight. I don't know about that, but... Um, you know, these guys that come to me and they say, well, we're going to be here in two years and we're going to be here in three years. You know, they plan it all out. I'm like, you know, you know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> I said, you have to like sit down after every fight and evaluate. Right. right. And two things. One is, uh, if I'm working with a fighter and I'm developing a fighter after every fight, I'll ask the fighter, what did you learn tonight? And if you can't, if you can't answer the question, I ain't done my job. And if he answers the question, I talk to those people, I, I believe my eyes, I believe him, and then I decide what kind of fight he should have next. And, um, you know, sometimes these guys, if, if, the, if, if you're giving them bums and, and, and eventually the guy, it's become, everything's a habit. People are what they repeatedly do. So if a guy is repeatedly getting in the ring and realizing that this guy is not going to hit him back very hard and he really doesn't have anything to fear, then he is going to go into that ring with no fear and no real, um, you know, concern for self-preservation because, you know, he's going to get killed eventually, you know, you know, not literally, but um, he's going to fight someone that can hurt him 
Right. So every fight you should have that attitude, no matter whether it's true or not, because that becomes a habit too. And every fight, um, that's the thing. You should put guys in that that they think that I have to be really on tonight. Even though this guy is, you know, five and five, but, you know, this and this, I notice it, you know, you, you, you know, it's like a football coach, uh, the Patriots, and they play a two and ten team. You don't think Belichick's like, you know, warning them constantly, you know, this could happen. Look what they did in this game. This, you know, this, you know, you guys sucked last week. This, you know, everyone's afraid to criticize these fighters. Everyone's afraid to like, uh, you know, uh, put their uh, foot up their ass once in a while. Everyone babies these guys. You know, this is fucking fighting. These, you know, this is like the roughest thing you could do. These guys are, you know, they're men. You know, they're, they're you know, like not like a macho thing, but like they're adults. And uh, you got to be hard sometimes. And uh, it's a hard business. The hardest, you know, when you reach that certain level, the hardest guy is going to win because eventually all the good fighters are going to fight other good fighters. So that's not what's going to win the fight at that level. So if you want a guy that's going to make a lot of money and become a champion, it's the talent gets you so far. But if you develop him in a terrible way, he's got no chance. He's got right. no chance. Right. He'll fight a guy with much more confidence. He'll fight a guy that, that knows what to do when he's hurt, that knows what to do when he hurts you. And um, if you're not, if you if you fought, uh, you know, 17 out of 20 guys who were, uh, you know, you know, couches and chairs and you know whatever, um, he's gonna he's he's gonna destroy you. I don't care how good you are, he'll right. destroy you. Right. No doubt. No doubt. Um, going back to Artie a little bit, the uh, you matched the Boxino tournaments. Um, I didn't do the first one. He did the first one in 97, I think, where he found Freitas. Okay. Where already made money for the first time. <laughs> and But I did... Um, the 2014? Yeah, I did a few boxing tournaments. Heavyweights and lightweights and middleweights. So you are you a fan of tournaments? I mean, what yeah, do you think I actually, of the uh, uh, WBSS? Actually, I'm a fan of, um, uh, you know... Part of the network boxing should be storytelling, and you know the story doesn't begin and end with one fight. So what HBO used to do when they were good was, even if they made a fight that wasn't fifty-fifty competitive, it had meaning because it would lead to something. They were t- right. they were bringing they were bringing a, they were telling uh, a story, and um, uh, these tournaments are, are are that you know like these uh, the super series which I think the is world fantastic. boxing super series it's fantastic I'm a massive fan I yeah. think it's a model for the sport that's how I, it I, should be done I agree I mean I you know it's like to me it's like the World Cup you know you see the best teams in the world play each other and you know now I'm watching the best fighters like literally forced to fight each other you right know, it's like it's it's fantastic so um, uh, the boxino tournament on a smaller level is like that right you know? okay. so I, I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, I should say, I mean, I wrote an article a couple months ago, just kind of like, you know, you know, the time's right for like a boxing league now or, or some sort of association. You've got all this money, all these dates. Right. And, you know, the WBSS has shown you, you know, that it, it's compelling. It's what the fans want. It, and, you know, good fights and, and ESPN, the only reason boxing is back on it was because the PBC did really good numbers when they had good fights, when they had mediocre fights. How much How much money did Heyman get for to do this? How much did he get from that uh, hedge fund? Oh, a ridiculous amount of money. So, I've heard different <laughs> figures. I mean, I've heard like maybe half a bill. 
Right. Yeah. I've heard that. I've heard. Oh, I've heard nine hundred and twenty million. Right. 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 So anyway, if I have that money and I'm and Al Heyman, brilliant. He got the money. I didn't. Right. Nobody else did. But if, theoretically, if I had the money, I would have gone to HBO and Showtime and say, "Hey, look, you know, my budget dwarfs yours. I'm in charge now." Theoretically. Right. But what I want to do is I want to help the business. I want to help you. I want to help me. I want to help the fighters. So I'd like to take the top four fighters in every weight class and do mini tournaments and create a world champion. We'll do half the shows in HBO. We'll do half the shows in Showtime. Um, don't worry about the promoters because I'm going to overpay these guys. And they're going to come in because where else are they going to go? They can't right. go to HBO. They can't go to Showtime. Where are they going to go? Right. You would have created tremendous fights. You would have created one world champion. Um you would have brought the losers back and fight each other like the UFC does. You would have brought the business back with that kind of money. And I don't understand why that didn't happen. No, I, I, you know, I, I interviewed Tim Smith and I said, I said, you know, why weren't you guys more inclusive? You know, it's like, you know, you try, you try to freeze everybody. But I don't, I'm not saying go to the promoters. I'm saying go to the people that bankroll the promoters, the network. Right. It's true. That's because the money I'm, I'm 20 times as big as you now. Right, right, right. So right. I can actually, you know, you don't want me dictating to you, that's fine. Do what you do and see how you compete with me because I'm going to get your competitor and I'm going to get all the major fighters. So you're going to be fucking ESPN3 <laughs> in a year. Literally. Right, right, you know? right. And see who, you know, see, you know, you get one or two stars, see, you know, how long it takes before they jump ship. Right, right. He could have, that guy could have saved boxing. The business. He could have saved the business. I agree, but I mean, <coughs> these fighters were under contract to promoters, and I think contracts they, run out over time. They do, but they didn't. I'm not I mean, saying it would have been easy. Right, right. They didn't. I mean, even with that, I mean, Canelo was a free agent, and and the PBC wasn't able to sign him. I, I think they probably should have tried to work something out. Canelo, Canelo could have fought, uh, you know, Harry Yorgi, you know, three times a year, and then after a while, people would get sick of watching that shit. <laughs> Know what I mean? well, he, would have, he would diminish. He would have diminished himself. Right. Any any fighter that would not would have taken would have not taken part in an overall scheme like that would have diminished himself. Right. Right. I'm telling you, over time that would have worked. Well, that I mean, I I mean, uh, I kind of wanted to go over some other things. Sure. But we, um, but let's get back to that. But um, so you worked for Rock Nation. Speaking of of, of you, I guess what 2015. Maybe? I think I'm. I think I signed a 119 page contract that I'm uh, not supposed to badmouth. <laughs> All right, all right. So we'll just all right. So, okay, so you you, you well, have some. I, sort of, I tell you what, the uh, the people I work uh, I work with Dino Duva and I work with David Iskowitz, and I had never worked with either of those two guys before, and they're like my friends now. I mean, I'm really glad I like worked with those guys in that capacity. Um, that's the good thing I can say about Rock Nation. <laughs> yeah, it was another like big company uh, that came in with a lot of money. I mean. I mean, I was a little surprised. That, I mean, I'm not at all shocked, maybe not even that surprised that, that it, it, it's kind of fallen off. But, you know, again, it's like, you know, the joke, you know, how do you get a million dollars in boxing? You right. start with 10 million. No, but it was, it, look, you know, bad business is one thing, but, but you know. Um, Were they shut out from the networks that you knew? I mean, did, was, was there? They didn't, they didn't, they didn't not endear themselves to the networks. Okay. For a variety, and I wasn't present when stuff like that was happening, but I heard about it. But um, they didn't, you know. I mean, networks are relationships like anybody else, and they didn't um, they didn't present themselves in a, uh, a cooperative manner, so or a friendly manner. Um, the peep, the 
people that were making the decisions, um, uh, quite frankly, are disgusting human beings. Mm. Mm. I think I can say that because I don't name anybody. <laughs> I'm not saying, and I'm not saying that about Jay Z. I never met the man. Right, so, right. Yeah. You didn't meet Jay Z or Beyonce, no? No. I didn't get any of that. no. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, all right. So you were you work for Debella as well, which again very interesting because with Lou you've got like three tiers of shows as a matchmaker to match for. You've got Broadway Boxing, which is a, like a local club show. Right. Then Lou also has dates on Showbox, where these prospects kind of take the step up. Right. And then uh, Lou also has a relationship with Al, so you're doing the the PBC shows. Although, are you really are you matching like the the premiere stuff? Or are you more matching like the undercards and the PBC cards? Are you you're doing are you matching the whole show or? No, I'm not matching the whole show. Um, every show is different, mm-hmm. so I would match all the loose fighters. I'd help out with some of the other fights. Um, I did all the work behind the scenes as far as like you know medicals and licensing and all that shit. Right, which again, another something that matchmakers do, right? Yeah, yeah. which is like you know, boring stuff that nobody wants to do. So, you know, <laughs> I got to do that for those shows, that was great. Um, <laughs> so I don't know, does, does Lou DeBello still have a relationship with Al Heyman? Um, yeah, they're still doing shows, right? I mean, I think he's got some of these well, Fox shows. That December show? No, 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 it's Tom Brown, right? Yeah, I mean, I didn't watch it, so yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was interesting that uh, it was a New York show and Tom was doing it. But, I mean, I don't know that Lou is not doing shows with, with Al at this right. point. But, um, so take it to present day. Uh, Matchroom uh, gets a very big deal with the network zone And uh, they're looking for matchmakers. And, of course, they come to Eric Botcher. So uh, talk to me. Uh, I mean, I guess you started kind of late, you know, 2018, right? Late, late last year you started with uh, yeah. August, I think. Oh, August, okay. July or August, I forget. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And um, you know, you you you've done a couple shows. Uh, you know, the you actually worked the um, Jacobs Derevinchenko show, right? Which right. had three or four different promoters actually working together on a show, which is not. Uh, which is well, who else was? Well, you had Golden Boy, Debella, and Matchroom. Just like three of the major guys. I, mean, I just seemed like to me, I did the show. <laughs> I, mean, I was the only one doing any fucking work. So. <laughs> exactly. <right. laughs> so, um, I guess, yeah, this, um, you know, Eddie, Eddie has, has, has come in and, and, you know, uh, People have different reactions to Eddie. I mean, Eddie is brash. I mean, he looks like fucking James Bond. He's like this big, tall, good-looking Tam guy. And yeah, I don't think he's brash. I mean, he's never like um, actually like like you know like an overtly nice guy. I mean, he, like, but he's very. Um, well, I just thought like when he was like saying he was going to sign all those PBC guys and all that, I thought that was a little yeah a little brash <laughs> oh that yeah well that yeah that's true that was brash yeah but you know Lou DiBella coming into boxing saying that he was going to be like you know different changing the game yeah, yeah different brother, you know like you although know, honestly Cedric, I will, Cedric Kushner's in the chain boxing with music <laughs> Lou DiBella's going to be the agent not you got to have a pitch I guess right? yeah I mean all these guys have their own version of that you know what we're all in the same fucking aquarium swimming around <laughs> looking at each other so I'll say this about Lou though those contracts that he had for fighters and in, in when he first started were the best fucking fighter contracts I've ever seen, and yeah, I've been doing this for a long time. For the promoter, <laughs> and in order to stay in business, he signed the worst fucking fighters <laughs> I've ever seen. Lou, all, uh, all that money. 
Oh, with the uh, the Olympians yeah. that, that, that he got, yes. I mean, my God. Most of them did not pan out, yeah. sure. Yes, yes. But um, you think uh, Eddie can replicate uh, eventually um, the live audiences and the excitement that he has in, the, in Great Britain here in the States? Not unless they start building soccer stadiums here. <laughs> well. well, we have football stadiums. You know? <clears throat> I mean, yeah, but I think, um, you know, football stadiums here for, you know, I mean, they're associated with professional, like you know. I mean, well, college I football stadiums too. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, does do college campuses really want professional boxing? You know? Well, it's up to Eddie, right? He's got to make them want it, right? So, <laughs> well, it's up to the whole business. Meaning, um, boxing is a major business in Europe, of certain parts of Europe. Boxing is a major business, and it's not a major business here. Right. So that's it's not Eddie that has to change that it's the, the business the people that are involved in this business in this country as a whole have to change it and they have shown no will or resolve to do that and you know Eddie Hearn can't do that because like you said when he comes in the impression that these guys have here you know look at this fucking brash young kid you know looks like you know, looks like, repeat what you say looks like James <laughs> Bond making all these outrageous claims well, that's not an attitude of like uh, you know, like working together. Right. Know, it's like none of these guys want to work with each other. I mean, uh, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, they're you know a bunch of fucking cannibals, <laughs> and you know they cannibalize each other. So right. uh, they don't they don't help the, the business in that sense. Um, they don't stand. You know, promoters have a lot of power, and they've never stood together to do something, whether it was with the networks or the commissions, or the sanctioning bodies, or the people that have some sort of control over them, they've never stood up to any of them. Right, right. They've never shown the will to stand up to any of them, because they don't trust each other. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, you know, again, the the article I wrote, uh, you know, uh, my proposition was that, you know, they do need to come together. I mean, at at this point in time, you've got, um, you know, you've got, Four networks, four major networks, all of them kind of different. You know, you've got a you've got a an over the air Fox, which you know reaches everybody. You've got ESPN, which is major cable, which reaches a shit ton of people. You've got Showtime, which is premium cable, which doesn't reach as many people. And you've got the Zone, which is a startup, um, and we don't know how many people it reaches. Right. But but all of them are tossing a shit ton of money into the sport. There's a ton of fucking dates, right? Um, but you've got like three, four different camps, right? You've got, you know, PBC, you've got Matchroom, you've got Top Ranking, you've got Golden Boy, who even though they're on the same network as The Zone, they're their own thing. Right. Um, you know, it's it's a huge challenge now. You know, if these guys aren't going to work together, um, you know, you know, it's, you know the, the pool of boxers is shrunk, and, you know, as you stated with, you know, with Rigo and so on, and you've got the four different networks all trying to, you know, but they all have to make great fights and well, see, maintain their TV deals. Well, see, that's what disappointed me about the Heyman model because he was the one guy that could change that. Um, like when, when you look at sports history, the, I think the, the the sport now that generates the most money in this country is the NFL, right? Right. Okay. So when the NFL started, they were folding. There, I think there was six or teams or eight teams, and out of the eight teams, the only teams who were making money were in Chicago and New York. The other teams were hemorrhaging money. Um, the millionaires that uh, funded the teams 
you know, they weren't billionaires, they were millionaires. So if they, you know, they were losing 10% of their money in a, in a, in a football season, they were going to get the hell out. And uh, Mara and Hallis got together and were smart men. They said, look, you know, we're making money. These other six guys aren't making money. If we want to continue to make money, we have to make sure that these other guys, six guys make money. Otherwise, it doesn't matter how good we are. Right. We're out. Right. So they formed, you know, they came, you know, they eventually, uh, you know, formed a league. And I'm going to say boxing needs to form a league, but it has to have some sort of, um, you know, some sort of infrastructure, some sort of, uh, you know, you know, uh, you know, almost to force people in line. And the way you force people in line is if you have a guy with $920 million, you know, he can dictate a lot of shit. Right. And um, other than that, you know, I don't see it happening. I mean, you know, people talk about unions and the leagues and all that. And they've been talking. I mean, I've researched boxing. They've been talking about that since the 1920s. Right. It's not going to happen. Right. This is, you know, this is the Wild West, as they put it. And that's one of the reasons why it's interesting, fascinating. You know, guy, you know, can't coach the New York Giants after a year, but I could damn sure manage the heavyweight champion after one year in boxing. You, know, you never know what could happen. <laughs> There's no barrier to entry. Yeah. 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 So, um, but, you know, in order for it to get back into becoming a major business, um, you know, something drastically has to change in the, uh, not only the business model, but just in the, uh, the infrastructure of, 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 of the uh, sport in this country. Well, that's what I, you know, that's what I argued in the thing. It's like the time is now because you've got all of this money, you've got all of these networks, and instead of trying to put Eddie Hearn and DeZone out of business, instead of trying to put Showtime and, and Al Heyman out of business, you know, for the greater good of the sport and for everybody, for everyone to keep their deals and keep this going, work together, do tournaments, you know? You know, I mean, it's, you know... It, What's going to keep you on those networks is great ratings and great fights. Right. And if everybody stays apart, you're going to have a bunch of shitty in-house fights. Right. And everyone's going to fucking lose their deal and, and boxing is going to be like, I, I don't know where the fuck it's going to be. Yeah, I agree. Look, nobody got the deal that Heyman got. You know, you know, the zone can say, well, I gave Eddie Hearn this and we gave Golden Boy that and all that. But that's over years and years of time. Right. You know, Al Heyman got a lot of money in a pot. Right. He could, right. have, he could have done this. Right, right. He could right. have done this. And I realized that he wasn't going to do it when Danny Garcia fought Rod Salka on Showtime. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I'm like, I was like almost ashamed to watch that fight. And um, I'm like, this is what they're doing with that kind of money. This is the kind of, you know, on the lower, you know, I mean, you shouldn't even think of making a fight like that with that kind of money. Right. And, uh, and you know what's crazy, too? I mean, well, you made the point that the NFL kind of made the change when there was only like eight, eight right. teams. But I mean, there are a ton of promoters in boxing, but like the major promoters who have like more than one or two fighters who are maybe in a top ten fighter somewhere, right. probably about ten, you know. Right. And even with that, I mean, it's really PBC, Top Rank, Eddie, and maybe Golden Boy. Who, who are who are? I mean, everyone else well, look, has maybe Golden, five or six guys. Yeah, for example, Golden Boy, right? Um, what happens if Canelo Alvarez gets hit by a car tomorrow? <laughs> right. right. I was thinking the same thing with Top Rank. What if Crawford and Lomachenko get into a car accident together? 
how are you going to hold that ESPN deal together with with the fighters you have? I mean, right. are you going to pull like million? Well, those, those are the only guys who are doing million dollar. Well, top millions, rank, has, rank has a history of producing. You know, true. Yeah, true, true. Like Bruce Trampler is beyond reproach as as, as a matchmaker. Right. Um, no, and, he's one of my heroes. Developing fighters. Yeah, he's one of my yeah. heroes. Also, a guy who uh, wrote for Flash Gordon, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so well, I guess. With boxing in, 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 in the state that it's in and, and you know, uh, with, with, with the warring factions all on different networks, I mean, it puts a shit ton of pressure on the matchmakers, right, to, to, to make fights that fans want to see and drive subscribers or drive viewers to it. I mean, it's... Well, the bottom line is the promoters make the final decisions. You know, I can only make suggestions, um, you know, and I'm not right all the time. I've made some pretty shitty fights. But, you know, I also made, you know, um, I made, you know, Warden Emmanuel Augustus. Which was an amazing fight. Like the fight of the decade on ESPN. <laughs> you know, I made a, you know, we had an HBO show that fell apart. And I put together Derek Jefferson and Maurice, Maurice Harris. Harris and Rachman <laughs> and Muskayev. So I do know what I'm doing. And um, um, I think uh, it's, it's tough for the promoters to um, to do something not that they don't want to do, but they, if they have an idea in their head, you know, and it's their money and it's, you know, it's their risk, you know, they're going to end up mostly doing what they want to do, to, uh, even with the fights. So, um, you know, it, it's a tough job because, uh, you know, you think, uh, you know, who am I to tell Don King not to put holy feeling with Larry Donald, right? Right. Who right, am I? Right. I should go out and start my own company. <laughs> so... <clears throat> Well, listen. I mean, it's it's a tough challenge, but if uh, but if anyone's up to the challenge, I, I would think it would be you, Eric. So, I uh, really appreciate you coming on to the podcast and uh, taking time out. And uh, good luck with the show on Friday. You're here in New York City for the uh, Andre and uh, Akbar fight, right? Yep. So uh, everyone, come out to that. But yeah, I really appreciate your time, Eric. Yeah, come on out. We're almost out of tickets, so please be quick. <laughs> awesome. All right, my man. Talk to you later. Bye bye. And that will do it for another edition of the Boxing Esquire podcast. I'd really like to thank Eric Botcher for taking the time out on a busy fight week to speak with me. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment or a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Audioboom, SoundCloud, or wherever you access the Boxing Esquire podcast. Really appreciate it as it helps new listeners find the podcast. And until next time, so long, everybody. Looking for...